The following message is by a guest speaker of Emmanuel Community Church. More information about the ministry of Emmanuel Community Church can be found online at www.emmanuelcommunity.org. Good morning, ICC. How are you guys? Uh, for those of you guys who don't know me, my name is Pastor Chris. I'm the youth pastor here, and i um, so excited to have had this child dedication this morning. Um, this week has been a little bit of a crazy one for me, I'm going to be honest. Monday, mo- or Monday morning, we left for uh, JGen, the retreat that Adelaide had mentioned during the announcements, and um, we were there for about four days, got back Thursday evening, and then we had a youth group hangout Friday night, and then we had a wedding yesterday, and then now I'm preaching this morning, and so I'm a little bit tired, but I am very, very, very excited, and honestly can say that I am um, glad to be here to um, share the Word of God with you all this morning. Um, I think all the things that have been going on have just reminded me of um, exactly what we're talking about. The sermon, or th- this series title is Joy in Christ, and there's just been so much for me to be glad about and give thanks for uh, throughout this past week, and God has just really been um, faithful in showing me more of that joy um, that we've been or that we talked about last week, and we will continue to um, work through today. So, I, I, like I said, I uh, spent the last, or this last Monday to Thursday at JGen, and it's a retreat where, um, like Adelie was trying to explain to you all, where joy is a very integral part of everything that's going on there, right? When you gather hundreds, I think literally this year we had close to 700 students that were there from about 80 different churches all over the country. So um, people from California, Texas, New York, Florida, all over the place. Um, A lot of people from the Midwest, but from other states as well. And um, one of the the most blessing times of me being at JGen is uh, watching these junior high and high school students get so excited about praising God. And so Words won't do justice to this, so I just wanted to share a quick video clip with you all so you guys can get a a little taste if you haven't ever been to this retreat before. Um, You guys can play the clip. Yeah. So if you see all those empty seats over there, it's not because those weren't filled. It's because all those kids at the beginning of the praise session are so excited to be there that they all rush to the front. So most of those guys in the front don't even have a seat behind them. There's people that are filling in the side trying to get as close to the stage as possible. Jumping up and down. I think this is the first night that we were there, right? And it only got more and more intense as we stayed. But as I watch these students praising God, um, experiences like that are, are moments in our lives when we know that God is near. We can feel the thickness of the Spirit in the air. The Word of God is being preached clearly with conviction. And there are so many brothers and sisters around you worshiping God together. And we've I I hope that everyone here has had an experience like that. And when we do taste the goodness of God like that, when we experience the delight that we have in God in moments like that, it's honestly easy sometimes to worship God. It's easy to say that, man, there is so much joy in the Lord. But at every one of these retreats, you know, as... as, um, as a leader of, of the youth, we know that we need to warn our students also that this is not always what real life is like, right? That there is, um, we need to brace ourselves for what's going to come when we come back home. 
Even later on in the week, just like uh, Pastor Steve just shared, his, his daughter Joy and, and um, his now son-in-law, Sam, um, got married yesterday. And I think a wedding is another great reminder of what this joy in the Lord looks like. Because on that wedding day, no matter what goes wrong, there's so much joy over the celebration of this couple being united as one. And part of our joy in the Christian life comes from this delight in God. These experiences where we're on this high, where we, ex- we know that God is right there in front of us, where we can taste and see him. But part of it actually comes not just from that delight in the moment, but even from the desire when we feel the absence of God's presence, the anticipation of a future delight in him. It's easy to have joy and to see how our joy glorifies God when he's near and we see him clearly and we delight in him. And last week we talked about pursuing that joy, that we should as Christians actively desire and pursue this present delight in God. But the promises for joy in Christ are for now, and we should pursue it, but it's also um, very much about the joy that we have to look forward to. The Bible doesn't guarantee us that every moment of, the, of our walk with him is going to be this, this spiritual high, this constant enjoyment in the, in the moment of God. But this desire that we can have is also a, re, a way of rejoicing in him or finding a, our joy in him, of treasuring God. In the absence of the actual present delight in God, in God it's our desire for him that shows his worth and shows his glory shows how beautiful and joyful the life in him is. Because you don't crave things that are not going to make you happy, right? You don't crave after things that are not going to bring you that delight and joy. So today we're going to look at um, a passage in 1 Peter chapter 1, from verses 3 to 9, and discover how the promises for our future joy in Christ are directly related, and they directly feed our present joy in him. The two are not always distinct. And in fact, I would argue that when the two are distinct, when we separate um, joy in the future and joy now, that it is not a proper pursuit of joy in Christ. When we have a joy in something that is joyful now but will not be joyful later, we can be sure that that joy is not in Christ because it means that that joy is temporary. It could be like playing video games for like five hours. You might be happy then, but you're going to regret it later, right? Or binge-watching a show like The Office for like a whole weekend. You watch a whole season. At the end of the weekend, like, man, I had so much free time and I wasted it, squandered it. Or procrastinating on a research paper or eating like ramen at 2 in the morning, right? Like, you know that it's going to be good now, but tomorrow morning you're going to have to pay. And these moments of joy where it's joy now but no joy later are fleeting, That's not the joy that we have in Christ. It doesn't last. But likewise, we can say that the joy where it's only for the future, but we experience none of the joy now, is also not a joy in Christ. Because I was trying to think, like, what would this actual expectation of joy later, but not now, actually look like? And it would be, I think, maybe some of the best examples that I could come up with were, like, buying a ticket for, like, the Mega Million when it's, like, a billion-dollar lottery, right? And you're hoping for something amazing, but right now it's like, there's probably no chance that I'm actually going to win this. Or making a bracket for March Madness, you know that you're going to lose, right? You're not going to actually make it through. Or trying to find a perfect person to marry. Sometimes that that 
seeking for that person. Like, yeah, you're hoping that there's going to be something amazing at the end of the road, but right now it's not that fun trying to find that person, right? This joy is distant, and it's possible, but it's so uncertain, and in some cases so improbable, that it doesn't give us a joy right now. If you were sure that that result was going to happen, if you bought that Mega Millions and someone were to guarantee you, like, this is the winning lottery ticket, then you would not only have a joy for later and an anticipation of joy, but right now you would be so excited just to have that ticket in your hand. But when we don't have these two working together, if there's no harmony between our future joy, our expectation of joy, and our present joy, it signals that there's no certainty. There's a, um, there's, it, it would probably lead to more anxiety and fear or sadness over the fact that I'm not experiencing what I'm hoping for right now. That joy may actually never come. So this passage in 1 Peter teaches us some things about this joy that we have in Christ that separates it from this fleeting joy and from this uncertain joy. The joy that we have in Christ is a joy that is now, that, that is for now, but is rooted in the anticipation of a guaranteed deeper joy later. Let me say it again. The joy that we have in Christ now, right now is a joy that is rooted in the anticipation of a guaranteed deeper joy later. We're able to have this real joy now because of our hope for the future. It's not the same. The joy that we experience now may not be the same as what we're anticipating for later. It may not be the same degree. We may not actually be able to see the fulfillment of that hope now, but it is a real joy nonetheless. A small example of this is like when I was at JGen this past week, um, Monday through Thursday, this is the first time that I went on this retreat without Connie and, and, and my kids. And um, Connie didn't have enough vacation days left, so she stayed home, and my mother-in-law was watching the kids for us. And, um, and while I was there, while I was experiencing this awesome, blessed time with my youth group, there was definitely a part of me that missed my family. And so Thursday, so Wednesday night rolled around. We were coming back on Thursday, and I was like, man, I can't wait for tomorrow to see my family again. Thursday morning, as we were uh, entering the last time of praise and worship, I, I was so thankful to be there, but there was still this part of me that was like, man, I can't wait to see my family again. There was this anticipation of being reunited with my kids. And in that longing, there's a real sense of sadness, but there was um, a joy in knowing that, that that afternoon or the next day that I knew that I was going to see them again. So let's Dive into our text for today, 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 to 9. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials that the tested genuineness of your faith, which is more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. 
The first point that I want to make from this text is that we, as Christians, as believers, have a living hope. And when we, when we look at this living hope and the way that Peter describes it here, he says that it's not a result of our works, but according to God's great mercy. According to God's great mercy. Last week, we talked about how when we are in these seasons where we don't experience the joy of Christ, that there is something that we should do. We should actively pursue it. But the reality of it is that we cannot force our hearts to delight in God. So it's because of God's mercy, because of his, his grace toward us, that we're able to have this living hope. It's an act of God in our hearts to change our desires, our delights. On our own, we can't see him clearly, and we don't see him clearly, and we can't make ourselves change that way, so we depend on him. But also, he says that this living hope is a result of us being born again. So again, kind of related to that last point, We are given, by God's grace, new eyes, new ears, a new heart, so that we can hear him clearly, see him clearly, desire him, treasure him the right way. Being born again is necessary for us to have this living hope in Christ. We were dead in our sin, but now we're made alive to God because of his mercy. And then the third thing that we want to notice about this living hope is that it is a living hope. And so that begs the question, what would it look like for us to have a dead hope? What is a dead hope versus a living hope? This idea of hope in the New Testament is is not exactly the way that we would use a hope today in all contexts, because sometimes when we talk about hope, we're just saying that, like, we kind of wish that this thing would happen, right? We wish for something to come true in our lives. But the idea of hope, um, as it's used in Scripture, was more of this sense of there's an eager expectation. There's a... um, there's a level of, of, of certainty that I can have that this is something that I'm going to happen and I'm anticipating the fulfillment of that, right? So we hope for things that we truly believe are going to come to fruition, not just that we want to come to fruition. So this dead hope versus a living hope, a dead hope would be like a hope that's either in something that you don't think is going to happen, really, and so you're kind of just wishing that it would, but you don't really believe it. Right? That might be one example of a dead hope. Another way that a hope can be dead is if you really believe something's going to happen, but it's actually probably not going to happen, right? So um, just three years ago, any of the Cubs fans in the area would have been said to have a dead hope, right? After 100 years of not winning, for you to continue to believe that the Cubs are going to win would have been kind of like you're just fooling yourself, right? And everybody in the whole country was like, you guys are are fools, you're the worst sports fans ever, you're just totally naive, have no idea, head in the sand, because your hope is dead, because there's no way that this is ever going to happen. You're hoping for this to happen. You, you want it to happen. You really believe it's going to happen, but we all know it's not actually, right? But after they won in 2016, that hope was revived, and every year now, there's an eager expectation for it, and nobody's looking at the Cubs saying, like, no, you have no chance. They're saying, like, yeah, they actually might win the pennant every year. But also, there may have been many Cubs fans that had been waiting and waiting and waiting their entire lifetime for the Cubs to win, and by the time that 2016 had rolled around at the beginning of the season, they're like, ah, this year is just going to be like every other. And so their hope also had died. And they were thinking, man, I had waited for this for so long, but in reality, I don't actually believe, believe that this is going to happen anymore. We have a living hope in Christ. This living hope means that we can 
eagerly expect for him to follow through on his promises. And that there is a certainty that we can have, and it's not a, a, a foolish certainty in Christ. That we believe that our hope in him is grounded and founded in the resurrection of Jesus. This is not just something that we know that can happen because Jesus was raised from the dead, but we trust that this is something that is going to happen for each of us as believers. Romans 6.5 says, For if we have been united with him in his death, in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. His resurrection has purchased an inheritance, Peter writes, an inheritance that has already overcome death. It's imperishable, undefiled, unfading. It is not one of those fleeting hopes that is going to be here for a little while, but tomorrow will be gone. And it is not uncertain because we've already seen that Jesus has been raised. And so we can trust that we also will be raised with him. But while it is not fleeting and not uncertain, it is still future. Peter describes it as an inheritance. It's something that we are told is ours. And it's just like a, a, an inheritance you might have from your parents, your grandparents, that it is yours to possess, but it's not actually presently yours yet. And so the hope that we have in Christ is like that, where we are given an assurance that this is going to be yours one day. You can look at all the things that Christ has purchased at the cross and through his resurrection for you and say that that is going to be mine and there's no doubt about it. But I'm not necessarily experiencing the fullness of it right now, today. Last week we talked about how Christians are constantly giving these customer reviews, whether we like it or not, of the life that we have in Christ. And our attitudes and the way that we live show the world what this life in Christ is worth and what it's like. But one of the passages that I think that is most difficult to reckon with this truth is 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 12 to 19. When we're talking about this joy in Christ, we should have a joy now that this passage kept on ringing in my mind. Like, how do I make sense of what Paul is saying here to the Corinthians with this desire to have a joy today? This is what that passage says. It says, now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there's no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if it's true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, then we of all, are of all people most to be pitied. And when I look at this passage, on the, surface, if, on the surface it feels like he's saying that if the resurrection of the dead is not true, then our lives are the most miserable of everybody's. Because the only joy that we have is like this life, of the Christian life is all suffering, it's all going to be hard, and, and you have to give up all of the... the present pleasures of life, and give it all up, and you're only looking forward to something in the future. And so, if it's not true, if you're not going to actually be raised from the dead, then man, you are the biggest suckers in the world. But then that would mean that we're not actually expected as Christians to experience joy in this life. Then we would say that, okay, the Christian life is miserable now, but will be good later, but the non-Christian life is joyful now, but will be miserable later, Right? But I don't think that scripture is, is posing this dichotomy to us. But actually, the Christian life is supposed to be joyful now and joyful later. So what I think 
is the key to unlocking what, what Paul was writing in that passage in 1 Corinthians is, is found in this passage we're looking at today in, in 1 Peter. That when we have this living hope, that if there is no resurrection from the dead, um, then we would also be living in a dead hope like the rest of the world, right? We're claiming that we have a living hope because the things that we're hoping for are a certainty for us, that we are assured that this is what's going to happen for us. But Paul is arguing, okay, if that's not actually true, then you're trusting in something that is, again, a dead hope. It's, you're, you're putting your faith in something that's not actually going to happen, and therefore we are just like the rest of the world where we're, we have a dead hope like they do. Except many of the people in the world don't actually care to have a hope. They've already resolved themselves like, man, this life is all that there is, and when I die, I die, and that's the end of it. We've been fooled if there is no resurrection, not in reality, but if there were no resurrection, then we would have been fooled into having a hope that, that has tricked us. And therefore, Paul is saying that if there is no resurrection dead, we are most of all people to be pitied. But the truth of the matter is, and Paul knows this maybe better than most of us, that we are not the ones to be pitied, but we are the ones who are most blessed of all people because we have been shown the grace of God. We've been given this living hope. We've been raised again to be able to see the truth of who Christ is. The second point that I want to make from this passage is that we're being guarded by faith. Peter writes that we have this living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, You who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. And again, Peter emphasizes that this is not by our power, but it's by God's power. It's by his grace that we are being guarded by faith. And then he says that it's this guarding of our our persons by faith is for a salvation that will be revealed in the last time. Our faith is God's gift to us to keep us while we are waiting for the, um, the coming to fruition of the hope that we have, the hope for our final salvation. So what's the relationship then between um, the hope that we're talking about and faith? Well, it's faith that clings to the hope of what is not yet seen, even when what is seen seems difficult or hopeless. It's faith that sustains hope in trying circumstances. In the verse that follows, it says that for a while we're grieved by various trials. We said that hope is an expectation for something that will take place, and sometimes our hope can waver because our circumstances tell us, like, man, this is not looking good. It doesn't look like this is actually going to happen for you anymore. Seems like the the hope that we have is less and less likely to actually be true. But it's faith that keeps that hope alive. And our faith is tested the way that gold is tested. That's the, the metaphor that Peter uses here, right? He's saying that gold is tested by putting it through a fire. And when you're trying to see between two nuggets of gold which one is more valuable, you put them through the fire and see which one comes out with more impurities. And our faith in the same way is put through a fire to see what the value of that faith is. And when, we, when our faith is put through a fire, it's not only the, the level or the, the strength of our faith that is shown, but the object of our faith. What is it that you're putting your faith in? We sh- we're, we're able to see what the value of that object is. God's worth 
a lot of times it's shown the most clearly when his people are going through trying circumstances in life. When people go through those trials and those hard times, we're able to show through our faith in him by saying that we're not going to waver, that he is actually worth putting our trust in. When you have good things and you're willing to sell them off and trade them in for Jesus, we show his worth through that. But also when you have bad things, even horrible things that happen in life, and you're able to still say through it all that Christ is enough, we show the greatness of his worth. And honestly, very often when people have those good things, it's hard for them to see past those things for long enough for them to say, man, there is so much more that is being offered to me in Christ. But when we go through these hard trials, a lot of times we go through it and we're scrambling, looking for any place where we can put, place our hope to find it again. Jesus said over and over in his ministry that it's the sick who need a doctor, not the healthy. It's the weak and the sinners who need a savior, not the righteous or the, or the, the strong. When we are guarded and protected by our faith from despair, then our hope is able to endure through that fire. And the eventual reward of that faith that guards our hearts is our salvation. So we've been talking a lot about hope and faith today, but the series is titled Joy in Christ. And so where does joy fit into this picture? It's a genuine result. Joy is a genuine result of, um, or is the result of genuine faith that endures even in the midst of trials. We rejoice in our living hope. The joy that we have is, is because of the faith that has led us through those difficult times in life. We rejoice now, even though we go through trial, because of the hope that sustains us. And our hope for the future feeds our joy in the present. Peter also writes that when we rejoice in this faith that we have and in the living hope that we have, that it is done to the praise and glory and honor of Jesus Christ. Last week, we were trying to, or I was trying to make this link between our joy and God's glory, right? And so when we have this joy, when we're able to rejoice in the, the living hope that we've been given, in the faith that sustains us, it is done to the praise and glory and honor of Jesus Christ. Peter says that um, this idea of putting our faith in Christ, even when we cannot see um, him in the present, that that glorifies him. And this echoes something that, that Jesus said himself, actually. In John chapter 20, verses 29, or verse 29, Jesus said to, um, it says, Jesus said to him, you, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not yet seen and yet have believed. That there is a value and there's a, there's a glory that is given to God when even though we don't see him, we're able to love him and cherish him and put our faith in him. But we need to ask ourselves, because last week I was saying to you that, okay, um, when we don't have joy in Christ, that one of the steps that we need to take is to actively seek to see him clearly, right? That when we see God for who he is, when we see Christ for who he is, that that will naturally lead us to worship him and to delight in him, to give us a joy in him. So when Peter says that though you don't see him, you love him, or though you have not seen him, you love him, and though you do not see him now, that you believe in him, what is he talking about here? I think the rest of Scripture can, can, um, can show us that this is not talking about spiritually seeing God. Because if we can't see God, if God has not opened the eyes of our hearts to be able to see him, then we won't love him. 
Our simple hearts don't desire him or don't put our faith in him naturally. But Peter's writing to those believers who aren't seeing him presently in the flesh, that may not um, have ever seen him bodily. But he's saying that even though you don't see him physically, that you still believe and you still love him. And there, that kind of a faith in Christ is done to the praise and glory and honor of Christ. So what do we do um, with all that Peter is writing to us in this passage? What do we do with the truth that, okay, we've been given a living hope as, as Christians, that we are sustained by faith, and that um, we're, we're doing this all to the praise and glory of God? Well, I would say a couple of things. One is that we need to live into this living hope, right? We need to live into this living hope. We always live with this glorious hope before us, and that hope for the future, for the promised things that God has given to us, for the inheritance that we are waiting for, that we claim it as ours. We know with certainty that it will one day be given to us. When there is little present rejoicing and delighting in God that we need to know that we should be sustained by the promise that we've been given for the future. Let that fuel your present joy as well. But also we need to trust in those promises. We need to trust in those promises of God and we need to remind ourselves of the promises of God. Honestly, like, I, I shy away from, at the end of these Whenever I preach, like having the application for the, for the message be like, man, we need to read the Bible more and pray more, right? It feels like every message, every time we talk about, talk about the Christian life, that those are the two keys. And there's good reason for it, right? But when we find ourselves in Scripture, when we remind ourselves of the promises that God has given to us, even when we don't see and taste Him now, that it gives us the strength to keep on going and say like, man, God, I'm not experiencing that fullness that you've given, you said that I would have. But I know that you promised it to me. And so I'm claiming that promise. One of the, the, the best lessons in prayer that I've ever learned is to pray through Scripture because, man, this is the truth of the Word of God. God has given this to us as a gift, and so use it, claim it as his sons and daughters. The sermon title for today is Joy Comes in the Morning. And, and in Psalm chapter 30, verses 4 to 5, and then verses 11 to 12, the psalmist writes, Sing praises to the Lord, O you his saints, and give thanks to his holy name. For his anger is but for a moment, and his favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes with the morning. You have turned, my, turned for me my mourning into dancing. You have loosened my sackcloth and clothed me with goodness, that my glory may sing your praise and not be silent. O oh Lord my God, I will give thanks to you forever. The psalmist has experienced the wrath of God over his sin, but he's clinging to the promise that even though weeping may tarry for the night, that joy comes in the morning, that there will be a morning that comes. And I think one of the ways that we get disappointed in the Christian life sometimes is that we think that this morning is necessarily going to come tomorrow morning, right? But it doesn't always work that way. Sometimes we go through seasons where, where for a long time it feels like we're seeking after God and we really want to experience his nearness and his presence, but it just doesn't come. 
But the promise that God gives here is not that if you just sleep on it, that tomorrow morning you'll wake up and everything will be fine. It's not that time heals all things or anything like that, but really that there is an absolute certainty that we can have that there will one day be a morning that comes. That as Christians, that we can trust in the promise that Christ has given to his disciples that I am preparing a place for you, but I'm going to come back for all of my saints. That there will be another resurrection where you will all share with me in my glory. We don't know how long that will be, but there is an absolute guarantee that our mourning will turn to to dancing, that our weeping will turn to joy, that our grieving will turn to gladness. Whenever I read that passage in the Psalms, it always takes me back to the cross. Always takes me back to the cross because when he says that weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes in the morning, I can't help but remember that Good Friday. Good Friday for us, bad for the disciples, right? When they were experiencing it in the moment. When Jesus was crucified and and all of his disciples scattered, and the women that were with him mourned over him. They buried his body in that tomb, and they said, they, they, they all thought that their hope had been lost. then we know that on that Sunday morning, it didn't come the day after, it wasn't on Saturday, it wasn't the next morning just because they had slept on it, but on Sunday morning, there was a morning that came when all of their sadness, their grief, was turned again to joy. That, that glorious morning is the, is the kind of a joy or a kind of anticipation that we should have as Christians. I hope that as we continue on in this series in joy, that, um, that all of us would, would look at the resurrection that Christ um, has already shown us in Scripture, at the truth that Christ has already been raised, and he promised all of his disciples that, that we also would one day be raised with him, that that would be a source of present joy for us. It would be a source of power for us, because that ragtag group of disciples that was sitting with him at at the cross, and then they fled, and then they found him again. That that resurrection was what empowered them to change the world, the course of history. It was what empowered them to suffer all things for the sake of Christ and count it joy and blessing. That was the joy that led many of them to their own martyrdom, when they faced, um, which they faced with all dignity and courage because Even when their lives were at stake, they knew that there was something that they could count on that would come after their physical death. This is the joy that is held before us, ICC, in the hope that we have because of the resurrection of our Lord and Savior. My prayer for our church is that that hope would sustain you all in in the times of trouble and times of weakness, that that hope would not only be a hope that gives us a joy that is anticipated, but even now that we would be able to face each and every day with our joy in Christ. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the promises for a real joy that we have now. For the joy and the dancing and the praising that we do today because of your goodness to us. We thank you for retreats, for weddings, for child dedications, where we can delight in the way that you bless your people.
But God, we recognize that this world is broken, that not every day is like that. We're reminded so strongly, even in hearing the news about what happened in El Paso yesterday, of how often that joy seems far away, of the reality of the grieving that happens in this life. But God, we pray that our hope would not lie in what we see with our eyes, but it would be in the truth that we know that we have a Savior and a Lord who is raised from the dead, who has conquered the grave, who has defeated all of our sins and all of our shame, who has already claimed that final victory. God, would you give us as a church the boldness to live into that victory that you've, you've won for us. God, we pray that even as we're living in this world, Lord God, that we would shine forth that hope for the rest of the world. God, that we would not be defeated by the news of the way that sin, this darkness seems to tarry for this night. But God, that we would be sustained by the faith and the hope that there will be a morning one day when you will make all things new, when you make all things right again. God, we put our faith and our trust in you because you are the only one that is worthy of it. God, would you refine us and our faith each and every day. God, help us to be a church that um, pictures the uh, joy that that you offer to us in this life well. To show the world um, you are God who is faithful, who is good in any and every circumstance. Lord, we thank you for giving us the security of knowing that we have a God who is on our side, a God who is sovereign over all. We love you, Lord, and we thank you for loving us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.